Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today on the show, I have Zach Waldman. Zach is a 10th Planet Black Belt OG under Eddie Bravo. He trains at 10th Planet headquarters in Los Angeles. Zach also happens to be a professional entertainer. He's an amazing magician, regularly performing at the famous Magic Castle in Hollywood. He's a comedian who's performed at the Comedy Store and the Improv, among other venues. He regularly performs for celebrity and high-end private parties and corporate events. Zach also used to work on the Howard Stern Show back in the day. In the episode, we talk comedy, magic, poker, being non-athletic, BJJ before rash guards, his crazy story of being a victim of random violence and its impact on him, and much more. It's a really fun and entertaining conversation. It was another one of those stepbrother, the movie moments, where I think we just became best friends on the podcast, followed by Karate in the Basement. Just a reminder, please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify, and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Please leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show, and consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt. All proceeds from there go back into the show and its promotion. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at Forever White Belt, and check us out on Instagram at Forever White Belt Show. Go buy your Forever White Belt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. They're amazing instructors, and everyone there are great people. They offer judo, kickboxing, and wrestling as well. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Zach Waldman. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me. It's uh, very cool to be here. Not sure how I ended up here, but I'm looking forward to finding out how. <laughs> yeah. I've known about you for quite some time, you know, from headquarters, the early, early days of when Eddie was even first videotaping their uh, mastering the system, the early stuff. I was a long time ago. I was one of those early, early subscribers. And I would see this guy in the background every now and then. And I heard you a few times because you have a voice made for radio, as we like to say in the business. <laughs> I figured everyone was like you at 10th Planet Headquarters. Everyone was a, sort of this, you know, you've got this outgoing personality, very gregarious, it seems like, and, and fun. But having interviewed all these different people like Jennifer Dietrich just recently as well, she's quite the opposite of yourself and some of the others. More just internalized, more quiet and that kind of thing, you know, different type. And then recently, I understand you were promoted to Black Belt as well. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've known Jennifer for years. She's a great lady and a, a, an amazing athlete, too. It's been quite a journey at 10th Planet. It's a perfect gym for me. I don't know that um, I would have fallen so in love with jujitsu if it wasn't for mm -hmm. 10th Planet and, and how non-traditional it is. What really resonated with your story to me as well was that you weren't this really super athlete or anything when you started, uh, much like myself. How would you characterize yourself back then when you were just starting? Well, full time, I make my living as a comedian and magician. That's what I do. And uh, you know what most uh, comedians and magicians look like. You know what I mean? It's uh, up all night partying all the time, which I mean, that hasn't changed that much. But I mean, there was just nothing even close to athleticism in my life when I first joined. Growing up, I played baseball and uh, I did different martial arts off and on growing up. And uh, through high school and college, I was 
into just your regular fitness, just strength training, conditioning, just the normal stuff you would do in a gym. Then that habit, I kind of lost that habit after living here for a couple of years. I went several years without doing any kind of exercise, no sports, no exercise, nothing. Yeah. That, that was how I ended up at 10th Planet was uh, with zero athleticism and probably a, a wreck on every level, uh, physically, emotionally. <laughs> I was, it was a disaster then compared to you know where I'm at now. Where are you originally from? I know you're in Los Angeles now, correct? Yeah, I was born and raised in uh, North Miami Beach, Florida. And then you made your way to Chicago, correct? Well, actually, I grew up in North Miami Beach and I went to college. Uh, I graduated from the University of Central Florida, UCF, which is in Orlando. And then after Orlando, I moved to New York. I got a job on the Howard Stern Show. Right. Uh, I used to be in radio and uh, was working at a radio station in Orlando and left that to be an intern slash like independent contractor for Howard Stern. After New York, I moved to Chicago and then from Chicago to Santa Monica. And I've been here 22 years now. The Stern stint was interesting, too, as many of you know, Zach was fired as from being an intern. How that works, I have no idea. For <laughs> streaking on air, you might have seen the extra YouTube uh, video clip. And if you haven't, I highly suggest you look back on it. The segment funny. extra did is almost funnier than the actual thing I did. <laughs> I agree. Because it's just so campy and it's, you know. It's from 1997. I was 23 right. years old at the time and I'm 48 now. So, I mean, it was a long time ago and uh, it's just, it's hilarious. It's just so over the top and very nineties. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, just type in uh, Zach Waldman, extra Howard Stern. You'll find it. It's on there. It's pretty fun. You're the prototypical Renaissance man, I would say. You've been all over the place and done all kinds of really interesting things. Were you just out of the gate born like this or, or what? I mean, poker magic, comedy, and all these- And you've really done your research. I mean, you've done tour bus guiding. I mean, you've done all of this really interesting stuff. Is that just you? Or I mean, did you come I, out I think, baked that way or what? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I love collecting stories. And so I've always had a, a willingness to just kind of do things if for no other reason than to get a good story out of it. It's funny, I was uh, listening to um, David Sedaris, but he was talking about that in terms of writing humor, about being open to experiences, about, you know, saying yes to things that most people would probably be like, I I'm not doing that. But, you know, go ahead and say yes to it because you might end up with a great story. And that's uh, always been the case for me. I, I like a good story. So and I think I've always just, um, for whatever reason, I've always had just a lot of interest. I get into something, I get obsessed with it. I learn everything I can about it. And then I go on to something else. I, I really like learning, but I don't like to actually do anything. <laughs> it's like, you know, I hear you. <laughs> I'll read like a whole like marketing course on starting a business that I have no intention of starting just because I'm interested in it. And then I'm like, oh, that was all fascinating. And that would probably be a really good idea. I'm not doing any of it, but I, w I wish there was money in just learning things and not actually having to do anything. I've heard you describe yourself as an action taker. How did you develop this personality type? Yeah, that, that seems like uh, it's kind of uh, the opposite of what I just said. I guess I do like to learn and not do anything with a lot of things, but the things that I really am into, then I will actually 
take the steps. When I first uh, started in jujitsu, that was an action step in improving, you know, my overall health. You know, I got to a point where it was like, all right, I've got some issues with some anxiety here and depression. And what do I do to fix that? And many years ago, I, I was in therapy and my therapist actually said to me toward the end of us being together, she said, you know, I got to ask you just for my own knowledge going forward. She said, you know, you're almost the only one I've ever had in my office that actually did the things I told him to do. And she's like, most people come in here and they have whatever issue they have. I tell them what to do. And then the following week, they haven't done it. And sure. they just spin their wheels and they see me for years and they pay me for years. And it's just, uh, they're on a repeat because, but you actually, I tell you, Hey, go ahead, go home and do the following. And you come back the next week and you've done it. And she was like, why, why you're the, and I said, well, because this is what you told me the, the cure was, this is, you know, you told me this is the way of, you know, I could feel better and I'm here because I don't feel well and I want to feel better. So you're the professional. This is what I'm paying you for. So I'm going to take my medicine. And it was, to me, it was as simple as that. It's if you want the results that are being promised, whether it is in starting a business. And, you know, I mentioned starting a business because I, one of the ways I've been successful doing comedy and magic is I mostly do corporate events and private parties. Mm -hmm. And that came from many years ago, realizing I had to learn the sales and marketing to do that. It wasn't enough to just have a good show. So when it came time to start my business, you would hear that commonly in a lot of these marketing courses, like, hey, most people just won't take action. They're going to go through this, think it's a good idea and not actually do anything. And so I think that was just something that was ingrained in me from the beginning was if you want these results, you have to actually take the, the steps. You have to actually do it. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to get the results. So I don't know if I was born that way or if it's just obvious to me that you're not going to get results unless you actually take the steps. All these things you've done could be perceived as really socially scary things, right? Like comedy, you know, terrifying, my God, all that judgment or perceived judgment, right? And then uh, magic, my God, you know, you have to perform these technical things right in front of people, jujitsu as well. And we often hear people, white belts, describing the fear of even walking through that door the first day. And so for yourself to take all these first steps into all these scary type of endeavors, if you will, for some people, what was going through your mind wanting to attack each one of those things? Were you afraid of all the judgment or all the stuff that goes on inside? No, I, I think, uh, you know, I started doing magic when I was a real little kid. And um, I think for me, what's scarier is having a job. To me, that's like the, the worst, that's worse than death. And I think the reason is mostly the lack of freedom. If I had a job where I was kind of left on my own, and I'm sure there are careers out there like that. I, I'm sure like CPAs just get a pile of work and they're kind of just on their own hmm. going through all this stuff. But I guess I always hated the idea of being told what to do, you know, having to wake up at a certain time, just having somebody nagging me, like, you know, just over me watching uh, how I'm spending every minute of my day. It's like, you know, look, uh, I'll get the work done. Just leave me to it. Like, leave me alone. I, I think I have the kind of a, an entrepreneur's mentality. I've started over the years, I've started lots of little side businesses that, I, again, it goes back to the thing of I'm just interested in it. So let's try this out and start it. 
Yeah, I, I think the fear of being forced into a job I hate is greater than the fear of being judged by people. Now, so much of this has focused into the entertainment industry. Is is that where you just seem to gravitate? Yeah, I, again, I might have just born been born this way. I'm the youngest of six kids. And uh, one time I was in a, like a Barnes and Noble and I was walking by like one of the racks with like the discounted books. And I, one of them caught my eye. It was a it was a book about birth order. It was uh, where you were born and what it said about your personality. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I pick it up and I look at the table of contents and, you know, there's oldest child, you know, firstborn, uh, middle child, uh, you know, baby of the family. So I flipped a baby of the family and uh, it says, be honest, you're the baby of the family. And the only part of this book you've looked at is the section you're reading right now. <laughs> it's like, it nailed me exactly. <laughs> like I literally, you know, picked it up and flipped right to what does it say about the baby, the family? And it said, yeah, there's a good chance you're in entertainment of some sort, probably a stand-up comedian. And I was like, it just it nailed me. So I don't know, maybe some of that's that being the youngest of six kids vying for attention. Also, my oldest brother is um, an amazing jazz and blues sax player. My wow. oldest sister wow. was a professional belly dancer, traveled the world. She was like uh, danced in Middle, e Middle Eastern nightclubs, traveled the world doing these really high end events. And so I guess there's some entertainment influence in my house, you know, growing up in my house as well. Yeah. I think my, my whole upbringing was pretty unconventional. So I think this combination of things, siblings in the arts, a big family, just being around a lot of different personalities, I, I guess it all kind of came together to have me end up doing this. I, it, you know, I, I have had jobs, just not very many and not for very long. And the jobs that I did the best at that I enjoyed the most were sort of like entertainment anyway, like working in radio. That was probably my longest career was in radio is like as a job job goes, but that barely feels like a job too. It's still kind of entertainment. And uh, I was a, a trolley driver in Chicago. That was like the last job I had. So it's over 22 years ago, but it was, uh, the company's gone, but I worked for a company called Chicago Trolley where I drove a trolley around and it was, uh, people paid money to like hop on and hop off and they would get a tour of the city, but at each stop could hop off and like go to the art Institute and then hop back on and ride the trolley to the, to Navy pier and then hop off. And, you know, you would give them a tour of the city and that was like doing stand-up comedy. You literally had a handheld mic on the trolley while you're driving. So you're driving with one hand on the wow. wheel, one with the mic. And I mean, let's be honest, it's Chicago traffic. You're going, you know, five miles an hour. But yeah. uh, you had this captive audience where you could, again, you, the trolley company kind of let you just do whatever you wanted. They were like, this is the route. This is what you have to do. But wow. as far as what you say on the tour, that's up to you. And uh, that might have helped my stand-up comedy more than just about anything. Because yeah, I was going to say, what a great way to get your 10,000 hours, right? Yeah, yeah, because you, you didn't have to make them laugh. You know, you could. Some tour guys weren't funny at all. They Some guys didn't even do a tour. They didn't talk. They just announced the stops. All right, Navy Pier, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah. giving a tour was like bonus. But they paid you plus you made tips. So I made a lot more in tips because I was funny. So, hmm. so but, let's uh, take a, like a 
a bit of a hard turn here. I know you've mentioned in the past that you uh, you were jumped and that it oh, yeah. severe consequences on your, your state of being. I know there's a lot of listeners that have experienced this type of thing too. Can you expand on your story and, and how it- uh, Absolutely. All right. So what happened was, I think since I was a little kid, I had issues with anxiety and depression, but it, I didn't have uh, words to describe that. And it wasn't like a constant issue. There were, I could look back and realize, oh, that was a moment of anxiety, which I guess is probably pretty normal. I guess everybody has, you know, moments where they're anxious, right? Uh, or depressed. But uh, it wasn't really a huge issue for me, but it was something that I th- had been there. And um, one night I was doing a, a show at a, a pub not too far from me in Santa Monica. And, uh, my brother happened to be in town visiting and uh, a friend of mine who's uh, his name is Sully, uh, his uh, his older brother. I guarantee you've seen because he's a famous pitchman. You know, mm-hmm. it's Anthony Sullivan for OxyClean, the tall British guy. Anyway, <laughs> his a younger brother is all, you know, is uh, also Sully, Anthony Sullivan, Michael Sullivan. He he used to be a pitchman too. worked for like QVC and stuff like that. Anyway, he's a musician and uh, he came to my show and he's like, hey, you know, let's go back to your to your place and, and you know, have a couple drinks, whatever. Sure. So my brother and I uh, come back to my apartment and Sully was uh, this is right down the street, this place. And he was right behind us. So I'm kind of wondering, like, where is he? So I call him up, which for me to even do, that was kind of weird. It's like, not like I worry, was worried about the guy. He was right behind me. I just thought it was odd. Like, did he change his mind that he's not coming over? Or, so I call him up and he's like, hey, mate, I, I got a problem. These these people are, are want, want to fight me. And then I hear oh. some yelling and the phone goes dead. I'm like, well, what is that about? So I step out on my balcony and I see, and Sully's a real big dude, way bigger than me. And I see him running down the street with a group of people chasing him. Like, oh my God, my buddy's in trouble. So I run downstairs, run out the the front door. My brother follows me and I open the door for Sully to come in. And there's this other guy that for a half a second, I actually thought was a completely different friend of mine that I thought maybe, maybe he just came by to hang out also. Like maybe Sully told him like, Hey, I'm going to go to Zach's like, come on by. But it took a second to realize, Oh no, this was one of the people who was chasing him. Then there's another guy. And then there's this girl. And one of the guys is like, we're going to kill everybody that comes out of your apartment building. And I'm like, what is, And so Sully, I'm like, get in. And he kind of freezes and doesn't come in. And the next thing I know, I'm like, man, I'm really hammered, which is weird how drunk I am because I didn't really remember drinking much tonight. This is the conversation in my head. And uh, I'm like, man, let me get back up on my my feet and I'm struggling. And I'm like, man, when did I get so drunk? And I wasn't drunk. What had happened? And so then I start to kind of figure out what's going on. And I end up back upstairs in my apartment. And I start start to realize that something happened. And I'm like, wait a minute. What about my brother? So like I untie my shoes and then tie them tighter like I'm getting ready to go into battle. Like, let me tighten my, and I'm just whacked. 
And then I start to leave and my brother's coming up. Then I was like, where's Sully? And my brother's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on? So wow. what basically happened was in that chaos, one of these guys and these other, these two dudes were big dudes. They were yoked. One of them punched me and knocked me out and wow. like dragged me down the stairs and was probably going to keep beating me. My brother like shoved him off of me. And it was weird. These guys like didn't acknowledge my brother at all. Hmm. And then my brother told me later, he's like, yeah, he knocked you out. And then you were trying to get up to your feet and you hit your own head again on like wow. a, a lamppost or something that some of this started to come back. These guys were trying to get in my building in the front of my building. And, um, my brother was able to close the door and then Sully was like, Oh, my phone's out there and was going to like open the door again. And that's what, one of the things that pissed off my brother was like, we just had a brawl with these guys, like a scuffle and they're trying to get in the building. We managed to get the door shut and it locks automatically. And you want to go back out? Like, good luck. You know, I guess they took off. Sully got his phone, came back in and we're all just like trying to figure out what happened, you know? And yeah, so on a side note, by the way, I don't usually tell this is still kind of the short version of the story, kind of. I usually just make it a real concise story. But a side note that I don't often tell this, this is how weird this was. I realized who these people were because I didn't know who they were exactly. But maybe a few weeks to a couple of months before this happened, I'm, I'm a night owl and I was up on my computer at like. I was working on a website or something and it was probably 5 a.m. And I hear some yelling and again, step out on the balcony. It's always the balcony. Oh, before I step on the balcony, I hear these guys talking and it sounds like a couple of guys that are just coming home from partying hmm. and they sound kind of like methed out. Like they're talking Ooh. like, I know that fast chatter, yeah. Yeah. methy talk or coked up mm -hmm. talk, whatever it was. And it yeah. sounds like they're joking with each other, like, uh, give me that money and like, give me the money you owe me. And, Boom. you know, it just sounds like it sounds like they're guys giving each other a hard time. But then it starts to escalate to sound more serious. So I go to my balcony and they're in each other's faces and they start fighting. And both these guys are cut and they kind of look like fighters. I mean, the, for all I know, they actually had some training. And anyway, they start beating the shit out of each other. Oh and God. I called the cops on them. And uh, by the time the cops came, they were gone. They had scattered. But I realized wow. later, those are the same three people. It was these two guys and this girl. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's the same people. And my opinion was, I think these guys really like to fight. And if it meant fighting each other, they were cool with that. So and, and my friend Sully, what I found out later was he had done nothing. He parked and he got out of his car and someone flashed their headlights at him. And he thought maybe it was me like signaling him to like, hey, come over. I'm over here. And when he walked over, they jumped out and tried to attack him. So oh, they yeah. lured him in to like fight him. It, it was totally unprovoked. And um, random violence is scary, man. Yeah, it was totally random. And this all happened in the blink of an eye. I mean, yeah. it I was annoyed with my buddy because it was like he didn't deserve to be randomly attacked. But it's like the cavalry showed up. All he had to do was I open the door. He steps in door. We close door. And then we talk about the crazy thing that almost happened to him. But wow. instead, he like 
didn't come inside. And I don't know if he just froze. I don't know what he was thinking. He feels horrible about it. I know that. But anyway, after that happened, though, I definitely any like anxiety I had now, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I would be in my apartment. I'd see a girl walking her dog out outside like during the day. And I'd be like, how is she doing that? I didn't want to leave my apartment. I had a, a weekly gig where I did magic every week at this real high-end restaurant in Beverly Hills. I would go table to table doing close-up magic. And on more than one occasion, I would I was halfway there and all of a sudden I'd be so drenched in sweat, just all panic-ridden that I couldn't, I had to go home and just like cancel the gig and tell them I was sick or something because- wow. I was, I couldn't wear my suit anymore. I would have had to have like showered and gotten completely ready again because I was that, you would have thought I was in a sauna. I mean, I can continue if you want about it because this does lead to the jujitsu thing. Go ahead, uh, continue. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, what happened was I, I I didn't know that what I had was anxiety. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I mm. stopped eating almost completely. Wow. I had no appetite. I would get super hungry and then I'd sit down and take a bite of something and then couldn't eat anymore. I would like get turned off by the food. So I started dropping weight. Right now I'm uh, like 170. If you look at uh, on YouTube, there's a video of my first ever jujitsu tournament. I was a white belt and it was uh, like a nine months and under division. And I think I weighed, I'd have to look it up, but I think I weighed 137 pounds or something like that. And uh, I'm like 5'11 and right now I'm like 170. And I mean, so it was absurdly, but it wasn't a good look. Like I was skinny, like, you know, I wasn't exercising or anything. So I was just really skinny, but like skinny fat. I was just a mess. And I see I'm late at night, four in the morning, an infomercial comes on. And it's these people talking about all these different things about, you know, how they feel. I'm like, oh my God, what is this? This is how I feel. And it uh, was a course called uh, Attacking Anxiety and Depression by this woman, Lucinda Bassett. And I was like, anxiety? Is that what's wrong with me? I have anxiety? Again, like I didn't even have a word for what was going on with me. And so I managed to find a pirated copy of her course and uh, snagged that and started devouring it. I was like, oh my God, this is my problem. And Mm. one of the first things that she, it was all based on cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was actually an amazing course because um, she encourages you to go to therapy. And when I did go to therapy, my therapist was so amazed at how kind of knowledgeable I was in what I should be doing. And I got it all from that course off of an infomercial. And um, the woman that put out the course, she wasn't a therapist or anything. She was just somebody that went through this and put together, kind of combined everything she knew and did research and her own personal experiences and put together this this course. One of the first things she recommended was exercising. And I was like, well, I don't exercise anymore. I used to all the time and I really should. And if that's what will help this, that's what I'm going to do. So I joined the YMCA and started exercising. And after a few weeks was kind of bored. And I thought, man, maybe I should do something that would stimulate my mind as well. Like maybe find a sport of some sort. I don't know, tennis or I don't know. I got to maybe find something to do that I can exercise, but also feel like I'm just not so bored. I'm just pushing weight around. 
I thought, oh, what about martial arts? I used to do martial arts as a kid. And uh, so I go to my restaurant gig where I was doing magic and there was a, a stuntman. He used to be a boxer. He was like ranked number 10 in the heavyweight division when Larry Holmes was number one. So he was an older guy. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated and uh he went from boxing to being a stuntman. Greatest guy ever. And uh, I told him what happened to me. And I told him what I was thinking about doing, maybe doing a martial art. And uh, he took it. He goes, let me show you something. He takes his tongue and he pushes, pushes it against his teeth. And his whole bridge comes out. Almost all oh. of his teeth were fake. There was all like different parts of this bridge. And he had a great smile. I never realized his teeth were mostly fake. And he said, dude, let me tell you, when I was a kid, I think he was a teenager. He said, a group of guys jumped me, beat me to a pulp, knocked out most of my teeth. He said, I was traumatized. And he goes, I went through everything that you went through. And he said, then I got into boxing and boxing turned out to be one of the greatest things that ever happened. It led me to a great career and a great skill and Gave me a bunch of confidence I didn't have and met great people. And uh, and eventually it led to me having a great career as a stuntman because I, a lot of, of what he did was coordinating fight scenes for movies because he had this boxing experience. And he said, this horrible thing that happened to you might lead to great things. He's like, you don't see it now because of where you're at. He goes, but down the road, he goes, you might actually be grateful for going through this trauma because of where it leads you. He had like a friend that was a Jeet Kune Do instructor. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll do that. I had done Wing Chun as a teenager and I thought, oh, Jeet Kune Do, that could be cool. But then uh, I was like, well, I know I, I was into UFC like in its early days, you know, when it was brand new. I used to watch it with my brother-in-law, but I wasn't super hardcore into it. I remembered, yeah, the guys that always win are the, the guys that do that grappling thing. And I knew Joe Rogan from the comedy store, mostly an acquaintance. It wasn't like we were best friends, but we had chatted and uh, we knew each other. And I was like, what's that thing Joe's always talking about? I think it's that grappling thing. I think it's jujitsu. Let me figure this out. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. It's jujitsu. That's what I was looking for. Like, maybe I'd like to do that. Then I researched jujitsu and found out there was two types. There was gi and no gi. And just based on my research, I was like, I want to do no gi. Just from what I was reading online, I'm like, I think no gi is for me. And so I typed in no gi Los Angeles and found um, this gym called Legends in Hollywood. And the uh, instructor was Eddie, this guy, Eddie Bravo. So I look him up and it's he's a big advocate for cannabis legalization. I'm like, oh, this guy's great. Notable students, Joe Rogan. I'm like, oh, this guy likes weed, no gi jujitsu, and I know one guy there already. I think I found my place. And that was that was how I ended up there. Uh, and this kind of takes us full circle to about my lack of athleticism. When I called up the gym, you had to have either a year of experience to join Eddie's class, like wrestling or jujitsu somewhere else, hmm. or you had to take three private one-on-one -on -one classes with either Brent Littell or Scott Einstein Epstein, mm -hmm. which uh, at this point, Eddie had never given anybody a black belt. And Brent and Scott were both brown belts and were like kind of his instructors. I didn't know one guy from the next. So I just called the first guy on the list, which was Brent Littell. I did my first private class. It was Brent, me and another guy doing a private and him and I were paired up. And uh, the first time I felt, you know, Brent put me in a lockdown 
and it hurt really bad. My body was soft. I had never done this. And I'm thinking, well, it's not striking. I mean, how painful could it be? And right. everything hurt. The mat hurt the tops of my toes and my knees, the lockdown. I was ready to tap to just a lockdown on my leg. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I could do this, but let wow. me at least get through three, these stupid classes, these three class. Let me at least achieve that goal, get through these three classes. So then I made it to the second one. It was brutal. I go to the third one. The other guy who had been there for the first two, much younger, much more athletic, stronger, ripped. Clearly it was an, you know, more athletic. He wasn't there for the third one. So it was just Brent and I, wow. and he's like, all right, you're good to go to Eddie's. And that other guy, I never saw him again. He, he never kept up with it. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt like that was a small victory. Like, well, at least I, I got farther than that guy, further than that oh, guy wow. did. Back then there were, there was no fundamentals class. Eddie taught, you drilled and then you sparred on day one. It was like, somebody was like, Hey, do you, you want to roll? I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I've taken three <laughs> classes and you know, I had a good experience. People were nice to me. They're like, it's okay. Just try to, you know, not let me get on top of you. Or, you know, they'd get on, they'd mount me. They'd be like, just try to get me off of you. And they, they would give me some pointers like, Hey, try this. But it was all through. I was thrown into the deep end. It's not like that at all anymore. Now at 10th Planet HQ, there's a fundamentals class that people go to and they learn all the warmups and they get a lot of experience before they go into Eddie's class. But back then, that was all I had. It was kind of like in Fight Club when he talks about guys that first joined Fight Club, they, you know, they were soft. And then after a few weeks, they were like, you know, I forget the way he words it, but like, you know, they were made. Yeah. 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 That's what happened to me. I, everything hurt and I was soft. I mean, the tops of my toes would be bleeding from the mat. And I remember Brent saying, don't tape them up, just get used to it and you'll get calluses. He goes, but if you tape them up, you'll never get used to it. And I'd get in the shower and I would just, everything would sting. Anytime somebody went to side control on me, I would feel a rib move. Yeah. It was like all my ribs got, it was like every week, it seemed like I had another rib injury. I was like, did I just break yeah. a rib? You know, every cough, every sneeze hurt, but right. I don't know, for some reason I kept going. And I think it was because I'm like, well, I got to get rid of this anxiety. I can't tell you that I did it specifically for self-defense, but getting jumped, that was part of it. It was like, if I'm going to work out, let me at least do something that in the future could be useful if I ever get into a situation like this again. So it wasn't like I got beat up and was like, now I need to learn self-defense. Sure, it was sure. more like I got beat up. I need to exercise to deal with the anxiety and why not learn some self-defense at the same time? Because I don't want to get beat up like that. I don't ever want to feel that vulnerable again, where I just have no idea what's going on. So your journey from white belt to black belt was a long one, right? What We're talking, what, 14, 15 years, something like that, correct? Yeah. You are an entrepreneur. You have many different jobs. You had to work jujitsu into all of this stuff, as well as all the other personal things that we go through in life. Was that the reason for the duration of it? How long it took? Did you yeah. stop and start? Were you consistent? In your promotion video to Black Belt, which is a wonderful video, I think everyone should watch it. One of my favorite speeches of Black Belt speeches that I've seen out there. The Thank acceptance you. thing. I think you said that Eddie told you, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to train this guy. I don't know if he'll be able to hang. Well, yeah, Eddie would always say anybody can do this. 
If you come to class and he would say that to the whole class, like all of you can get your black belts. You just got to keep coming to class. Just keep going. You can all do this. And he's like, I can teach anybody. But along the way, there were just things that I was just, I had zero balance, zero athleticism. I just had nothing going in. And Eddie would laugh. He'd be like, Anybody can do this, man, but you make me, you know, wonder sometimes, you know, like that was just his way of goofing around with me, you know, but no, I started in 2007. So yeah, it took me 15 years. You could subtract about a year from that because I, I did break my ankle and leg. I mean, everything below my knee, tibia, fibula, talus, I I destroyed it all unrelated to jujitsu. And, um, that knocked me out for a good nine months or so. You were jumping a fence drunk, I believe, is what you. Uh, yeah, that it was. It's an insane. <laughs> that's also, everything in my life is. A, I told you I like collecting stories. That one was self-inflicted, but yeah, I, I jumped over a fence and very tall fence, and I landed flat on my feet, and it pushed the in my right foot. It pushed the ankle bone up into my shin bone and just shattered it all. Oh, and wow. no, it was a, it was a mess. I, I destroyed it. So the reason it took me so long is I think it just, that's how long it took me. I got there with nothing, you know, like we've had guys, you know, the Martinez brothers, right? Gio and Boogie, those guys came in as not just break dancers, some of the best break break dancers in the world. Those guys were competitive. Their whole crew was competitive break dancers who regularly won the biggest competitions. And they just had to be shown the moves and they could do the moves. Like Eddie would this is what you do. Okay, done. Me, I I still can't do a cartwheel. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, and then there's other guys that have been wrestling their whole lives. And it's like, they have that base, that balance, the work ethic. You know, I just didn't have any of that. It just took me a long time. I, I I will say maybe one of the, what's kind of weird about jujitsu is um, it's one of the few things that I've really stuck with that I was never obsessed with, with the way I am with other things. So that might've been a factor too. Like I love poker, as you mentioned, I've been playing poker forever and I am still obsessed with it. I still study all the time. I play every chance I get. I watch the poker live streams. I just, I could live and breathe it. Jiu-jitsu, I would go to class and then forget about it. Uh, most guys aren't like that. They get addicted to it. So they, they are watching YouTube videos and they've got a buddy that they're like, Hey, let's get together on the weekend and drill, or let's go to open mats and drill. And they get obsessed with it and they put in the reps. And I was like that with magic as a kid growing up, you know, I would just practice all day and night and couldn't get enough of it. I wasn't like that with jujitsu jujitsu. I love it. I think I'm more, I'm, I think I'm obsessed with it now, but I wasn't at the beginning. It, it kind of went backwards. It's something that the more I've done it, the more I've liked it. And some of that might be because I've gotten better at it. Maybe it's not, it, it doesn't hurt anymore like it used to. It's funny, getting my black belt has made me even more enthusiastic. And I think it's because you hear about a lot of black belts, they get their black belt and they kind of stop going to classes often. They Their interest wanes. It's kind of gone the other way for me. I feel like I've got to live up to it now. It's like, oh, I'm a black belt. I've got to live up to this. I've got to show people why I'm a black belt. So it's strange that I'm more into jujitsu now and learning new things and 
spending more time with it now than I was at the beginning. My mm-hmm. love for it has grown as opposed to becoming diminished. If I had to sum it up, I'd say the two biggest reasons it took me a long time. One is that I just was such a non-athlete. I just had such a long way to go in terms of the athletic part of it. And number two is I went to class and then when class was over, I didn't think about it anymore. I didn't go home and watch videos or study and I didn't take notes. Eddie would always say, "What you guys, when I teach you something, how about, I don't know, recording it with your phone or writing it down. It's like, you went to college, you know how to take notes. And I just didn't do it. I was like, it's this thing I show up, I do, and then I leave. And Mm -hmm. it was always uh, a struggle. I don't want to say it was a struggle to go, but it kind of was. It was like this thing that I liked, but also dreaded at the same time because I knew what an ass kicking it was going to be. It's like, and also, I mean, I have zero anxiety now. I mean, none. I don't get anxious at all, but I would get anxious going to class. I'd be driving to jujitsu filled with anxiety, like, you know, worried about getting hurt or doing something stupid in front of the class. Well, you sound like the average practitioner, like Joe regular. He's got a job. He's got other responsibilities. He shows up maybe, I don't know how many days you were showing up a couple of times, maybe three times a week if you're lucky. No, generally three or four. I I will say I was pretty consistent. Our class is only four nights a week. It's Monday through Thursday. That's the other thing. (laughs) Another reason it's perfect for me is because our class is 830 to 1030 at night. I'm a night owl. And anything I have to do on my business in terms of like sending out a a contract or doing any kind of marketing stuff happens during the day. So, and I don't have to wake up at any particular time. So I could wake up at noon and then respond to emails and stuff, take care of all that. And then classes and until 830 at night. So I generally went three to four times a week, every week, but I didn't give it any thought or very little thought outside of the, sure. that two hours. Yeah. Again, that yeah, the average person, I don't see them taking notes or any of that stuff. Like you said, they just kind of come in, they do their thing and they leave and they, they go on. I, I get it. I did obsessed. You know? If I had done like two classes a day, every day, and I went home and I, if I had done that, I, I'm sure I could have done it in half the time for sure. You know. Mm. Now you mentioned the warmups. It's funny because in the promotional video as well, when Eddie gave you the black belt, it's one of the things he mentioned is he finally learned the warmups. And and to be quite honest, the warmups was one of the things that intimidated me out of 10th planet altogether, right? Seeing those things like I'm not a gymnast. I can't do cartwheels as well. I can't walk on my hands. This is one of the things I shared with Jennifer as well. So hearing you say this, it's somehow you got through it. I'm like, I don't know how you did it, man. Cause those, the warmups alone were just like so intimidating and they've evolved obviously, but in the early days it was, it looked very gymnastic focused. They're really not. I, I think what you're at the start of class, we shrimp, we do kind of this, um, like a flexibility warm up. Like we're just going like, I don't know. I don't even know what he calls it. Like knee, like, I don't know. It's like, you're kind of dropping one knee and then pivoting and dropping to the other knee. And then, right. So yeah, like, a mo- yeah, and then people do cartwheels and they walk on their hands, but there's other people that can't walk on their hands or do cartwheels. So that's just the, something we do to warm up for the warmups, but the actual warmups we do that like the flows Yeah, they don't really they're not very gymnastic oriented other than like the flyover and the flip over, which, you know, even I can do those. What's funny is the warm ups that we do now, we have eight of them. 
those didn't even exist when I first started. So there's plenty uh-huh. of black belts from Eddie that have never done those warm-ups. Like they got their black belt and they stopped coming or, you know, they went somewhere else and not all 10th planet schools do the warm-ups. There are uh-huh. affiliates out there that don't follow the warm-ups. And I still manage to screw them up from time to time. <laughs> uh, you know, he's always changing them. They're always evolving. It's like we used right. to do it this way. Now we added this. And it's like, what? All right. Now I got to figure that out. So in class, were you ever like in roles or drills or anything like that? Early on, were you like really focused on winning? Because I noticed that sometimes, or I've noticed in, in other academies, that sometimes there's, you know, it typically be, it seems to be lower belts that when you're like a white belt, I thought it was all about winning. That was me. You're supposed to win at, at any cost. doesn't matter if it's a kitten, you know, a child or, or whatever. You just, you go for the kill all the time. Was that the case with you? Because yeah. now in your speech, you, you seem to come from a more mature type of viewpoint is what I would call it, where you're actually sharing your fondness for everyone now. Yeah. I mean, that is probably the, the biggest benefit is the, the friendships, the camaraderie. That's a big part of what makes me enthusiastic about going is I'm going to see my friends. And uh, the people, generally speaking, I think the jujitsu community is made up of really cool people. You know, I, I was at the grocery store and some random guy saw my 10th Planet hoodie and he went to a different school. But right away, we were friends like, hey, man, I do jujitsu. I train, you know, wherever it is. And oh, blah, 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 what belt are you? Mm-hmm. This was uh, several months ago. And there's an immediate oh, bond you. between jujitsu guys. And I've done that, too. I've seen somebody at a bar and I'm like, hey, man where do you train? And we're instantly friends just because we have this common bond and they know how hard it is and they know what it's about. Yeah. But I I always want to win though. I mean, I think that was when I probably what kept me going in jujitsu in the beginning was when I got that first tap. The first time you tap somebody out, that's a pretty amazing feeling. And that never wears off. It, it always feels good to have somebody give up. <laughs> it's, it's a real fun feeling. Now yeah, with my black belt, I really don't want to be tapped out. <laughs> you got to about kill me before I'll tap now. I love that you you have such a fondness for poker too. I've you know I came from the other way around. I was obsessed with poker and and playing tournaments and studying and reading all the books and everything. And I love it. People often equate chess to jujitsu, right? And I always think of it as actually poker. Poker and jujitsu have all these correlated type of things. But I think you can do that with any type of sport or endeavor that you're sort of into. You can find these relations. But even the bluff, right? Like the bluff is like a big one. I think poker is a meta is the best metaphor for life out there. You're right. You can make comparisons with anything, right? Like you could take any book or movie and analyze it and find the meaning in it that you decide to assign to it, right? You could say, oh, well, them, you know, choosing to do a, a close-up in this scene is indicative of them showing this about the character. Like, you know, I love um, interpreting literature and things like It's fun. I just, I like looking for the symbolism and all that. But I honestly think poker is a better metaphor than anything else. And I think you have to really be a, a pretty decent poker player to understand why that is. So if people don't play poker, they might be confused as to how, but like I, one example is in poker, as in life, you can do everything exactly the way you're supposed to do it and still lose. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, oh man, I, I don't understand. I, I had this job interview and the resume was perfect and I killed it in the interview and I was dressed appropriately and they all liked me. And But somehow I didn't get the job because of this weird thing that happened. It's like you, you can do everything that is 
the best of your ability. And anybody would look at it and objectively say, yeah, that's the way I would have done it. You did it exactly the right way. It all still fell apart. And that's poker's like that. You can get your money in good as a 99% favorite. And that dude hits that one outer. <laughs> and somehow, you know, you're, you're four of a kind gets beaten by a bigger four of a kind, you know, and you're like, what? Like, I've never seen that happen, and, but it happens. Uh, somebody has a straight flush and it's like, I've only had a handful of straight flushes in my entire life. And the, the idea of somebody, you know, of you losing with the bottom end of a straight flush just seems unfathomable. People think that poker is gambling. It is, but it's gambling in the same way that all of life is gambling. It's like, all right, you cross the street and you look both ways. You're still gambling that you're going to make it across. Mm -hmm. You could mm -hmm. get struck by lightning as you're crossing the street and you would go, okay, I would take that gamble because I got across the street and there's a 99.9% .9 chance I'm going to get across the street. So you, you do it, but it's still a gamble. You know, an engine off of an airplane could fall out of the sky and crush you, right? Uh, poker's the same kind of way. Yeah, it's it's gambling, but you know if you're getting your money in good that in the long term, you're going to, you know, realize your fair share of the equity. I think what but I find so fascinating too is making decisions based on limited information. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and you're and you're also doing this again. You're matching wits with another human, and yeah, and so to go back to jujitsu for sure, it's like the bluff is a great example. You convince them that you want one thing just to set it up to get the other thing. You know, it's putting all of your you know your weight into them. Like you're trying to get up to dogfight position just to go the other way and use their resistance to half plex them to the other side of you. You take a really big dude and he goes over like a feather because all of his weight was in one direction and you took advantage mm -hmm. of it. So yeah, it is like a bluff. And also there's so much to learn with jujitsu. It's insane. Sometimes I learn the most from looking at uh, jujitsu videos where it'll be like, you know, three of the most fundamental guard passes you should learn as a white belt or three things that you need to know about framing as a white belt. And I'll look at it and I'll go, wow. That, that helped me tremendously. All of a sudden, I'm, you know, my framing is way better because I watched a video that was really fundamental, but there's so much to every position. You know, um, I love Brandon McGarren, BMAC. He's yeah, the yeah. Uh, head instructor of 10th Planet Decatur. One of his fundamental videos, and I immediately started doing what he said, and I looked around and I realized, wow, I'm in this advanced class with all these killers and nobody's doing this. And I started doing it and it, it changed everything. I can even tell you exactly what it is. I'm saying it like it's a secret because it's like, I don't want everybody doing this now, you know, like the EBI overtime, you know, how we have EBI overtime where you yeah. start on either the back or in the spider web spider position. Web. And so BMAC was uh, talking about how most people, when they start there, let's say you're starting on the back, you're right up against their back and you look 
for a rear naked choke, you want your ear to be next to your opponent's ear. And when you're up tight against their back, you'll notice that his ear, especially if he's a bigger dude, is, is way above yours. And you just don't have that leverage. He's like, just scoot your hips back a couple of inches and now lean them back into you. And now look, your ears are perfectly matched up. So I started doing that and we'll be doing EBI overtime and I'll slide back and pull them back. And the person I'm doing it with will sit up and push their hips back into mine. So then I back up again a couple inches and lean them back. And they do it, I think, just out of habit as like, oh, that's the way we do it. But whenever I make the correction, no one ever says to me, well, what are you doing? They just accept it. And immediately my frequency of getting rear naked chokes skyrocketed during EBI overtime with that one little adjustment. Meanwhile, we all do EBI overtime all the time. And you look around the room and everybody is, is as close to their opponent's back as they can be. And that was off of one of his fundamental videos. And then he did it as one of his one minute jujitsu hacks. hacks. And right. it's a tiny change that I see almost nobody making that I, I now started making. So my point is jujitsu, again, like poker, is there's so much to it. There's so much to learn. The deeper you go, the more you realize how little you know. And there's just so many little adjustments to every position that makes such a, a difference in how effective you are in those positions. What is your game? What's your A game? Probably half guard and quarter guard. I think since I started with Eddie as there's hardly anybody left from the days when I started. They've all either opened up their own schools or moved or don't do jujitsu anymore for whatever reason. But because I started when I did, I think I gravitated to what I learned first, which was real classic Eddie Bravo stuff. A lot of rubber guard, a lot of uh, half guard. So I love the electric chair sweep. I love going up to a uh, dog fight. Something I need to work on is my passing because, um, my standing passing because I'll either start on the bottom and just give people top half because I'm comfortable from there. Or I'll start, if I do start on top, I kind of just will try to get head and arm, get past their Z guard and work from there. These days I've really been big into the dominator, you know, uh, having a top lock. So it's a lockdown from the top and double underhooks. Doing that for the last uh, year or two and having a lot of success with that from the top. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would say my my half guard, quarter guard, rubber guard, the stuff that I learned in the beginning is kind of what I stuck with. And it was like, I want to get really good at those things. Um, So you're a near distance guy. Yeah, a lot of clinching. That's um, Eddie's game, yeah. Yeah, and then trying to improve on the with my uh, standing passing and... I should be going for more leg locks probably than I do. My leg lock defense is good. We're heavy on leg locks at the school. So you're going to get good at them whether you want to or not. But I generally just care about defending them and trying to get on top of people versus attacking. But I, I've been stepping up my leg locks, uh, leg lock attacks uh, a little bit too lately. What kind of advice would you give to people on their journey, on their belt journey at the various belt levels? I think you should be proud if you ever even step into a gym to do this. Most people are just never going to do it. They're never even going to be white belts. Jiu-jitsu is hard. I've always been the old guy in class. When I started, I was 33. Everybody, I think, was in their early 20s. Now I'm 48 and now everybody's in their mid 30s. So it's like, I would say one thing is your journey is your own. Don't compare yourself to other people. I think that's a good rule for all of life. Sam Harris 
talked about this, about how, you know, you compare yourself to other people and you feel bad because you don't have what you think you deserve or you, you're putting, you feel like you're not as good as them. That's not a, a great way to go through life. And then if you're doing better than them, do you really want your self-esteem to come from at the expense of your friends where you're going, well, you know, I'm making more money than this friend or I'm more successful than this friend. So just comparing yourself to people is a dead end, whether you think they're doing better than you or worse than you. Either way, it's just get that out of your life. I think that's hard for people to do. The best ways I think to, to stop doing that is to, to look into it and see all of the ways why it's bad. And if you catch yourself doing it, take steps to, to stop. But one of the things that helped me to stop doing that. Now I'll get back to the jujitsu path, but I feel like this is important because if you are a white belt and it's taking you a long time to get your blue and you see all your friends surpassing you and you feel bad about it, it's not a fair comparison because just scientifically, when you compare yourself to somebody else, you can't take in all the variables. You know, you only know what you see. You don't know what the rest of that person's life is like. You might be jealous of them on one level and not realize that they're in the middle of a horrible divorce or they're battling a disease that you're unaware of. So it's not even a fair comparison when you compare yourself to other people because you don't know all of the mitigating circumstances. A better thing to do is to compare yourself to yourself. Because that is something that you can measure. You can look and see where you are today, and then you can compare yourself today to where you were yesterday. That You actually have a, a barometer there. You could say, all right, my goal is to go to jujitsu four times this week because I've, for some reason, I've only been going twice a week and it's not enough. And so you can say, all right, this week I did better. This week I made it three times. That's an objective thing that you can measure as opposed to saying, oh man, this other guy, he goes twice a day, every day. You're comparing yourself to him. Again, you don't know the circumstances. Maybe he's independently wealthy and has nothing to do, but go to jujitsu. And even if that's the case, maybe while he's going twice a day, every day, maybe he's doing that because some other aspect of his life is, is really horrible and he needs to take his mind off of it. And this is how he's doing it. So to your question, I would say the first piece of advice is your jujitsu journey is yours and nobody else's. Just worry about your own improvement and take pride that you ever started the journey at all. It took me, I think about, I put a Facebook post of all my jujitsu journey and pictures and I put all the dates up and I forget what they were exactly, but it was, oh, cool. I don't know, maybe four years for me to get my blue belt. It took me a long time. You mentioned Jennifer Dietrich, whom I love to death, one of my favorite people. She started her jujitsu journey after me and got her black belt before me. But she also came in as a gymnast. Uh, she's a, a personal trainer, life coach. Physical fitness is her career. My career is comedy and magic. Like <laughs> There was this old school workout program called Body for Life, and I decided to commit to doing it. And I did. And I got into the best shape of my life. And it felt great. 
but I was working out twice a day because I was following the program and I wanted to keep going to jujitsu. So I would do the body for life thing when I first woke up in jujitsu at night. At some point, I'm like, what am I doing? This isn't my career. I'm not going to be a personal trainer. I have to write jokes and work on tricks and do the sales and marketing for my business. I can't spend so much time working out. But Jennifer's the opposite. That is her career. And other guys who, from the beginning, want to open up their own jujitsu gym. I get it. That's part of your career. So again, it's just, if I was comparing myself to to Jennifer, I would be really depressed, (laughs) but I'm not. It's we, you know, that was her path was her path and my path is my path. And then I think about all of the people I've seen start that never made it to blue belt, all the people who made it to blue belt and quit. And again, I'm not comparing myself going, oh, look at me. They, I'm great. They suck. That's not the point. It was more of a pride thing. Like you kept going. So I took a lot of pride that I just kept going. I took pride in, in getting hurt, healing and going back. But uh, one piece of advice I can give you, if you're like me and you, you know, start on your journey and um, you're getting hurt a lot in the beginning, just know that the number of injuries that you go through will greatly be diminished as you get better at jujitsu. All of my injuries happened in the beginning. It's when you're a white belt and you're flailing about and you don't know how to move yet. You don't really know what you're doing and you end up turning the wrong way out of a heel hook or mm-hmm. not tapping fast enough. You, you, you don't want to tap. So you end up getting your elbow popped. And the worst part about getting injured is it means you can't train. It means you're, you know, you're, you're paying for jujitsu and you can't go and you want to go and you start watching videos because you can't go. And then watching those videos makes you really want to go. Try to avoid those injuries in the beginning by tapping early and tapping often. It's more important that you're healthy and you can train again. That's more important than not tapping especially when you're just in class, you're not at Abu Dhabi. It really is for, for nothing. <laughs> Let's see, to take you through the gambit as a white belt, be proud you started the, the journey. Try to not flail around, try to calm down and go slower, then be persistent and realize that when you get to the blue belt level, you've gained a certain level of competency and again, take pride in that. But it wasn't until I got my purple belt that I really felt like an assassin. Purple belt for me was the hardest of all the belts. I think I did the most growing between blue and purple. When I got to purple is when I felt like, yeah, I could really handle myself. If someone were to attack me again, I would be very confident in my ability to defend myself. The way I felt was like, I've gotten this far. Why would I stop now? I understand why people never go in. I understand why they quit after a short time of being a white belt and going, this isn't for me. And I could understand why getting your blue belt, you feel like, all right, I'm good. I can, now I can quit. But I really feel like getting your purple belt is one of the most important because it just shows a a much higher level of ability. And I think once you get there, then it's just a matter of time. Going from purple to brown took me, you know, I don't know, another four or five years or something, but it just felt like the process was continuing. And then brown to black was probably the easiest one. You know, when you get your brown belt, you you kind of are basically a black belt that needs some refinement. Eddie talked about this. I got into a bad habit of showing up late, missing the warmups, not taking the warmups seriously. And that delayed me getting my black belt. 
but Eddie yelled at me enough about it. <laughs> he didn't yell at me, but he encouraged me enough. He would say, dude, just show up on time. He would say little things like I'd show up late and he'd go, uh, what, what time do you get off work? I'm like, what are you talking about? You know what I do for a living? He's like, right. You don't have a job, right? I'm like, no, I don't have a job. job He's like, job. huh? He's like, so you're, why are you late then? <laughs> it was his roundabout way of saying, of all the people here, you have no reason. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I was watching YouTube, you know, and just, you know, I, I guess there's one last thing I would say about it. Again, this is another reason I think jujitsu is so great because this is another one of those life lessons that's relevant to jujitsu is your journey. The process has to be more important than the goal. And I, and I believe that's true in all of life. If everything you're doing is to get to some end result because you think, oh, when I finally get this thing, I'm going to be happy. Trust me, you're going to get that thing. And then you're going to be like, well, I have to go on to the next thing to be happy. You're never going to one day be happy. You can only be happy now. So you have to enjoy the jujitsu journey for the journey itself and not do it because you think that when you get to your whatever belt, your black belt, that you're suddenly going to be happy because welcome to forever white belt, right? You get your black belt. It's like, well, what are you doing? Well, you, you're still on that journey and you've got to love the actual learning process and all of the things that go with jujitsu. I mean, you, you hear about people that work on dissertations for their PhDs and they work on them for years. They think they're going to be so happy when they turn it in and then they turn it in and they're happy for a day or two because that thing they've worked on for so many years is finally over with. But then a lot of them get depressed because they're like, well, I've been doing this thing for so many years. Well, now what's next? Even if we're not talking about jujitsu, just in the other aspects of your life, you can have a goal, set the goal and then forget about the goal and enjoy the process. And you will hit your goals, but they'll come about as an inevitable part of what you're doing. And when you achieve those goals, it'll just be like, oh, all right, that's cool. I did that thing. And you could set new goals, but it can't be why you're doing it. You've got to love the process. So Zach, can you tell me a time you wanted to quit and why? I never wanted to quit. My, my biggest fear has been if there's a day where I feel like I can't do it anymore, how am I ever going to replace it? That's a fear. It'd be like, okay, what am I going to do? Yoga? Like yoga is cool. Yoga is great, but it's not the same as fighting. <laughs> it's not, you know, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I, I never, I don't think I ever even considered it. I've thought about quitting comedy and magic a million times, but never, never jujitsu. I think all comedians and magicians, I think we all do that because something happens where you're just like, what have I committed my life to? And some just ridiculous gig happens or some horrible client or whatever it is. And you're just like, what am I doing? I should just poker full time. <laughs> and I've, I've come very close to that. I, I, I've played basically full time. And what I learned with poker was I could do that. And I, I love poker, but there's something that's not very fulfilling. It's I don't it's know. It's just grind. Too many. That's a grind. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. It's just yeah. a grind. It, there's a lot of things that are great about it, but mm. it's a grind. And with comedy and magic, even though you, you're ready to blow your brains out one day, then the next day you'll do a gig and you'll think I'm the luckiest guy on the planet. I can't believe I get paid to have this much fun. Mm -hmm. So there's the highs and lows with comedy and magic mm -hmm. can be real extreme with jujitsu. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really thinking about it and I don't think I ever considered it. 
So advice to those that haven't won gold in competition yet. I get feedback from white belts oftentimes that are just like, I'm miserable. I haven't won gold in a, even a local, I'm talking about little local tournaments. So advice to, to those. Again, do this because you love it, not because of some reward that you think you're going to get. I, I've only competed a handful of times. And uh, not only have I never gotten gold, I've never won a match. I, I've been eliminated the first round of every tournament I've been in. Now, I will say this. I want to compete again. I think I'll do the master's division the next time I compete. Yeah. The difference between me now and those other competitions is I had, I still had a ton of anxiety. Mm-hmm in all of those competitions. And I just have zero now. So I think I would probably enjoy competing more now than I did then because I don't have the anxiety issue. And uh, I think I would do better now. I think I'm I'm just, I'm better at jujitsu, but more the mental game is there for me. Like it was, I was just, oh my God, I I can't tell you how anxious I was before competing in Mm -hmm. tournament. I mean, just, it was the worst. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm money for this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm giving these people money to put myself through this hell, but I don't know. I guess I just don't care. I mean, I do, but I don't like, I would love to get first place in a jujitsu tournament at some point. I I've never gotten first place in anything, (laughs) you know? Mm like entered some athletic competition as an individual and gotten first place in my life. So it'd be cool, but I would be competing mostly because of how happy I am that I can compete with no anxiety and for the fun of it. Again, I think the process always has to be more important than the goal. There's a, a stoic philosophy that's based on that because most people's unhappiness comes from a gap between what they have and what they want. And then they get the thing they want. And then they just recreate that same scenario. Again, you get used to the things that you want, you get them, then you become used to them. You take them for granted. And then you go seeking happiness at getting the next thing. And and that's where your unhappiness comes from is the gap between what you have and what you want. Whereas the stoic philosophy would be to appreciate what you already have. And one of the tricks the Stoics would use to do that is they would imagine something very precious to them and they would imagine not having it anymore. And it wasn't dwelling on the negative, but it was just for maybe five, 10 seconds, imagine that you don't have this thing that you cherish and then immediately go back to realizing you actually have it. And it's a way of, it's like a 10 second stoic kind of, you could call it a stoic meditation or a tool of stoicism to to close that gap and to be happy with what you have as opposed to what you want. And I have found that to be incredibly effective. Another stoic meditation, they call it the last time meditation, because everything that you're doing, there's going to be a last time for it. There's going to be the last time you're ever able to hang out with this person. And you don't know when that is. You know, somebody very close to you could suddenly be taken from you. An activity that you love, like jujitsu, one day, maybe you physically just can't do it anymore. There's going to be a last time for everything you do. So take a moment and realize, hey, this thing I'm doing, this could be the last time I ever do it. So enjoy it. And that is in tune with the idea of enjoying the process, being grateful for what you have and just being uh, in this moment and not trying to live your life for some future moment that you think is going to bring you happiness. Time to be happy is right now. And you can decide that. 
it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I always tell the guys that, you know, or people that have talked to me before is like, I'm on the back nine of life. That's, you know, how I describe it. So I want to attack this thing as aggressively as I can, knowing I cherish every day and everyone around me and, and all these moments. You look great, man. Thank and you, brother. I, right back at you. Thank you. And I'm sure jujitsu has a, a big, you know, is a big part of that because yeah. you want to talk about comparing yourself to other people. Look at your Facebook page with the people you went to high school with. And they, some of them look 30 years older. And it's like, again, you don't want to compare yourself to people as a, a sign of like a measure of progress or something, but it's just another benefit of doing jujitsu, I think, is it keeps yeah. you young. There's a lot of guys in, you know, their early mid fifties that look really good because they're still doing something. Your mind and your body are both engaged in jujitsu. And again, the friendships, right? The, the people you surround yourself with, the, these are all things that keep you uh, emotionally and physically uh, healthier. Now you've seen a lot of talent come in and out of headquarters. You must have seen it. The evolution of the game and uh, the practitioners and these kids coming in now, like you were mentioning Geo and Boogie, even then at that point was like a, you know, a hockey stick explosion upwards in terms of talent, et cetera. And now, you know, as I mentioned, oftentimes with the internet and all these things, like you mentioned, BMAC and all, all these things you can learn and all these details, what does it look like to you? It's unbelievable that people are just doing the impossible now and it's gotten just more and more complex and more subtle and people are, they're getting into it at younger ages. It's unrecognizable. I mean, when I started at HQ, leg locks were always allowed, but there was a, like a couple of people like, uh, I guess, Shigeki and Scott Ross, Scott Ross, uh, and Matthew Dempsey are the um, guys that run 10th Planet Ventura. And mm -hmm. Scott Ross was always, always had a, a vicious straight ankle lock. So there was always uh, a couple of guys into it, but not like now. I mean, the leg lock game is yeah. such a huge part of jujitsu and so complex. It's almost like a separate martial art. It really <laughs> it's is. like, yeah. And so that, I think that's one of the biggest changes I've seen. Also, it seems a lot more mainstream. There seems like there's more money in jujitsu with bigger mm -hmm. tournaments and more stars of jujitsu than there used to be enough money in and now it's it's worth it to actually try to win and whatever you got to do to do that it's look when i first started at hq no one wore rash guards it was t-shirts and uh and shorts right. and you know you're 10 minutes in the class and everybody's t-shirts are drenched with sweat and they're on your face suffoc you're half the time you're tapping out to getting suffocated by the dude's t-shirt you know i mean yeah. you look at the the old pictures of hq and yeah everybody no one's wearing anything that matches and it's like Board shorts and t-shirts. Zach, what about um magicians, new magicians that you would recommend that we might not know about? Magicians that like to check out, you mean? Yeah. Oh gosh, there's so many. You mean specifically like up and coming guys or yeah, yeah, you know. We're, we're looking for the new talent in the record stores and that kind of thing, looking for the new albums, you know what I mean? There's a guy named um, I always mess up his name. I think it's Nick DeFat, and he's a comedy magician. I like him a lot. I'll tell you a way that you can see some really creative, unique magic. There's a thing called FISM, and it's kind of like the Abu Dhabi of magic. Wow. <laughs> and uh, it's every three years, and it's an international magic competition. And I personally hate magic competitions. Competition, I, I hate yeah. all, I hate all yeah, art I hate as that. competition. Yes, that's crazy. With that out of the way, these are, if you look up on YouTube, FISM, F-I-S-M, and like FISM winners, 
Oscars or you'll find compilation videos of people who won FISM. And even though I hate the competition aspect of it, you will see some really creative and unique magic that way. And that might not be something the average person searches for. So you might not run across it. So that's kind of a good hint for you. It's funny with magic. I think a lot of the people I like the most are probably the people that have been doing it longer. It's it, same thing with comedy. I think it's kind of the opposite of, of jujitsu. I think comedy and magic, it's to your benefit to have been doing it for a really long time. You have, you know, if you're 21 and you're doing stand up, you just don't have as many life experiences, uh, have the same perspective as somebody who's, you know, 40 or 50 does. But sometimes there's a prodigy, right? Or a freak talent or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. The thing about magic is that there are definitely guys who are, you, you could see dudes on YouTube doing things technically that are just, I mean, are mind blowing because these kids had access to the internet and stuff. They were able to see these things growing up. When I started doing magic, it was all out of books. And so you would read the description and you would practice it, but you didn't even know if you were really doing it right until you met another magician who did it at a really high level. And then you could say, ah, that's what it's supposed to look like. But now kids can find this stuff on YouTube and they know what it's supposed to look like. And so technically they're able to do things that some of the best magicians alive can't do. But magic, the tricks are really secondary to the performance. Like I watch magic shows all the time and I know how they're doing Doing what they're doing, my appreciation comes from the presentation of it. So yeah, there's there's always going to be some 11 year old prodigy that does amazing sleight of hand that I can't do, but he's 11. How entertaining is he really going to be? Yeah, you know? right. Where I'd rather watch some dude that's 40 that has you know just an amazing presentation, has something to say, a point of view, great comedy, whatever it is. But, you know, Fool Us, the Penn and Teller show, showcases a lot of great magicians. I love Penn yeah. and Teller. Yeah, they're fantastic because I saw them in Vegas a few times. Yeah, they're, they're the best. Yeah, my, my favorite magicians of all time are Penn and Teller and uh, the amazing Jonathan and Harry oh, Anderson. Yeah, 100%. Matt King. Matt, if you're ever, there, there's a tip for you. If you're ever in Vegas and you want to see a great comedy magic show at a really great price, go see Matt King. Hmm. Uh, yeah, wow. he was at Harris for years now he's at the Excalibur hmm. and the prices are, I forget what he's charging now, but it's like, I don't know, 30 bucks a ticket or something. The guy's awesome. Yeah. He's a great comedy magician. He's been around forever. Great guy too. So I'd be remiss if I don't ask you about the, the magic castle. Can you tell me what's it like the whole vibe and, and everything? Yeah. For people that don't know, the Magic Castle's a private club in Hollywood. You're not allowed inside unless you're a magician or invited by one. Magicians who are members there. Guys have to wear jackets and ties and dresses for the ladies. And it's an old Victorian mansion with a whole bunch of theaters and a whole bunch of bars and a restaurant. And uh, you basically go theater to theater watching different shows. There's a a close-up theater, uh, which is where I perform. It only holds 20 people. They let 10 stand, so technically 30 people. And it's all close-up sleight of hand magic, cards, coins, that kind of thing. Then there's the parlor, which is uh, medium-sized magic. And then the palace, which is like your stage magic, like more your David Copperfield illusions kind of thing. And um, yeah, you have to audition to become a member in front of the board. And then you audition again for the individual showrooms if you'd like to actually be a booked performer 
were there. Yeah, it's there's no place in the world like it. It's Mecca for magicians. It was designed uh, to be a, a clubhouse for magicians to get together and it's for the advancement of the art form, to exchange ideas. We have a weekly lecture where a magician comes in and talks about the uh, art and craft of magic. We have a library of nothing but magic books. That's what it's there for is to advance the art form and for magicians to have a place to get together and exchange ideas. So final question I want to ask you, jujitsu practitioners you admire and have been an influence on you? Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> most of them are going to be 10th planet guys. I got to be honest. Obviously, Eddie is my is the biggest influence without a doubt. I've been with him longer than, like I said, almost anybody. He started off teaching at a place called the Bomb Squad. And I started with him shortly after they left the bomb squad and went to this place called Legends. And a lot of those people I started with the Legends were the biggest influences. And a lot of them are still very close friends. Scott Ross, one of the first friends I made at HQ. I used to give him a lot of rides home after class. And he gave me a lot of great advice. You know, he would say things to me like, if you're in a, someone's got you in a submission before you tap, ask yourself this question. Do I have to tap or do I want to tap? And if you have time to ask yourself that question, you probably just want to, and you don't have to. So toughen up. He, he toughened me up quite a bit and uh, spent a lot of time uh, just helping me and being patient with me. Brent Littell, the guy that gave me my first one-on-one -on -one classes before I went into Eddie's, another great Great guy, close friend of mine. He's one of the few people after he got his black belt from Eddie, went and got a black belt in the gi. So he's got a black wow. belt in the gi and no gi. That's pretty cool. Scott Einstein Epstein, another one of those first guys, just one of my favorite people on the planet. He's funny, great instructor. Chai Sirisut. Chai was the head instructor at 10th Planet Long Beach. Unfortunately, during the riots of 2020, his gym was completely burnt to the ground. I hope he opens up a new gym. He's one. He's just a great guy. His dad is the one who brought Muay Thai to America. His dad's like a legendary Muay Thai kickboxer. A lot of my friends at 10th Planet were also my biggest influences. You know, Dempsey, uh, Ziggy. Ziggy, who's a 10th Planet Black Belt, he's an OG and he's like the other guy that's still there. He still shows up and trains and he's another guy that's been there. He may have been there longer than me. I'm not sure, but he's an OG. Man, it, it's hard for me to, I guess, name guys outside of 10th Planet. I mean, I watch all kinds of videos to get tips and stuff. You know, one of my biggest influences is uh, is a guy who does jujitsu, but he's not a jujitsu influence, which is Sam Harris. Sam Harris, the, the neuroscientist, used to go on Rogan's podcast quite a bit. And he's got an app called Waking Up, which is a, it's a meditation app. But it also includes a lot of great conversations with brilliant people, contemplatives. And uh, I don't know if he's still training, but I know he does jujitsu or was doing jujitsu. And a lot of what I learned from his Waking Up app has helped me with jujitsu. If you're one of those people that find yourself comparing yourself to others, Sam Harris can help you uh, get cured of that. <laughs> I mean, there's the obvious ones, right? Like uh, I'm a huge fan of Jean-Jacques Machado, but I've never trained with him. I, I would love to one day drop in and, and do a drop-in class with Jean-Jacques.
That's good. Well, I'd ask you uh, how you tie your belt, but you're not a belt tie. I don't guy. even know how to tie it. And you got a black belt for God's sake, an actual my actual belt. How dare you? An actual black belt, and I have no idea how to tie it. And I kind of <laughs> no, take pride in that ignorance. Like I know I could learn. I could go on YouTube, but yeah, I there you think go. it's like um, I'm just tense, uh, homegrown. That was one thing Eddie said about me. He's like, "Yeah, it's tough teaching you because you don't know anything and you have no athleticism." He didn't word it this way. I'm paraphrasing. He's like. But on the flip side, I don't have to break you of any bad habits. So I get to build you from the ground up. And so I'm as 10th planet as 10th planet gets. I mean, you you see me roll. It's like, yeah, that's all Eddie Bravo. (laughs) It's all Eddie Bravo all the time. Well, Zach, I can't thank you enough for making the time. Where can our listeners get more information about you and everything you're up to? Well, first of all, thank you for seeking me out. I can't believe the amount of research you've done on me. And so I, that, I just take that as a huge compliment that you were interested enough in me to spend that much time. And thank you. I know we've talked a lot, long time here. So I just appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. I, I feel like Thanks we're so already much. friends. And uh, well, yeah. hopefully one day I, I get to meet up with you. The next time I have a gig up in the Bay Area, maybe we can meet up. But uh, so I just want to start by thanking you, man. Th- thank you very much. It it's, oh, yeah. uh, feels good. It was cool to get my black belt and then have somebody go, Hey, you got your black belt. I want to talk to you. It's like, damn, we're getting some respect around here, you know? <laughs> but um, for me, all my stuff is under my name. The best thing is to go to my website, which is zachwaldman.com. And if you're out there and you're having a private party or a corporate event, hit me up. I travel all over the world doing them. You know, so it's like, if you're having a sales meeting and you want to bring in entertainment, I, I've booked corporate gigs from jujitsu. That's another thing wow. that people don't think about with jujitsu. It's a great networking opportunity. You're going to meet a lot of people and you might get your next job from somebody you're in class with. But I've multiple times I've had people from HQ say, Hey, my company's having their annual holiday party. And uh, I told them about you call this person and boom, next thing I know I'm, I'm working my friend's holiday party, this, you know, corporate holiday party and uh, making more money from jujitsu than I, you know, I'm spending on, I've gotten way more out of jujitsu than I've put into it. And I, I've put my heart and soul into it, but I can still tell you it's, it's given more back to me. Yeah. You've got some great testimonials on there too. What is it? ZachWaldman.com, right? Yeah. Just my name, ZachWaldman.com. And you'll find me on all the socials. It's Zach Waldman everywhere, except for um, Instagram. It's Zach Comedy Magic. But if you type in Zach Waldman, I think Zach Comedy Magic still comes up. So yeah, but ZachWaldman.com, my website is the main place to find me. Okay, guys, we'll add that on the show notes. That's Z-A-C-H-W-A-L-D-M-A-N.com for Zach. I am Adolfo Ferrandi, your host. Thank you all for listening, watching again. Please give us a nice review on all the things, and we will see you guys next time. Again, Zach, thank you so much for your time. I can't appreciate it enough. Uh, Thank you so much, man. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.